Welcome to Secret Handshake, the podcast that covers the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, spine number 17, 1959's Ride Lonesome, with the first on-screen role of James Coburn, Karen Steele's torpedo bra, and some Bud Bedecker fucking genius. Jacob? Yes. She's the kind that's got a need, a deep lonely need only a man can get at. Seven men, seven men, with the state of sin upon their hands, will have fear to ride as their companions through the stormy dark desert land. Seven men will be hiding from the roar of hoofbeats in the night. Though the night may hide them till the sunrise, there is no escape in the flood. A big black hawk of fear will cast a shadow on the sun, and none among them shall be Welcome back to another episode of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight. Joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, how you doing, baby girl? I'm doing great. I am really excited. Yeah, well, this is your pick this time. Uh, Bud Boddicker's Ride Lonesome, 1959. Uh, tell me why this movie. Because even when you pitched it to me, I was like, yeah, I'm into it. But like, I didn't know you had such a personal connection to his filmography. Yeah, he's um, he's the kind of filmmaker for me who I, I found him in grad school. It was one of those things that I had just never seen or heard of him before. And my professor, uh, Dr. David Pratt at Emory, uh, was teaching a Western film class. And I was the TA, so it was for undergrads. And the picks were just fucking awesome. It was I'd never seen Once Upon a Time in the West. We watched like old like John Ford Silence, like The Iron Horse. Just like going through, like I mean, old Harry Carey Sr., like silent John Ford stuff, like fucking awesome. And then so we, like really running the gamut. It was always great. And I got to teach a class on Peck and Paul. So I'm like, all right, this is not, this is great. Um, but we got to the Bedecker week and we did tall T, which is like usually what people present as like the Bedecker film. Sure. Um, it's probably one of the more interesting like subtext in that film. I think out of all of them, but ride lonesome uh, after I saw tall T, I just went and said, I got to see everything he had done. And, what makes it kind of easy to get through the Bedecker filmography while it is super long, we're not talking about every Bedecker film here. We're talking about the renowned Westerns, which were the films that were produced by Randall Scott and um, Harry Joe Brown, his producing partner, and renowned their names together. Um, and there are like 13 roughly total that they produced together, but the main five or six, like like the ones that are considered the classics are the ones that they collaborated on with Bud Bedecker. Correct, yeah. So fi- so we're also going to talk about Seven Men From Now, which is the unofficial beginning to that cycle while it right. was a Warner Brothers picture with more money. Um, and you can tell watching the movie. Uh, then you get the other five, though. Uh, Ride Lonesome, uh, Tall T, Decision at Sundown, Comanche Station, and Buchanan Rides Alone. 
And because Seven Men from Now was Batjack, right? And that was uh, John Wayne's company. Wayne was supposed to play the lead, right? Um, and then he was stuck making stuck making the Searchers, like one of the greatest American films of all time. And the timing didn't work out because he was he had made a promise to John Ford, right? Probably, probably also contractually obligated. Um, I'm glad it happened that way because then we also got. Randolph Scott, so then from now, who's fucking amazing. Well, because Wayne, according to this book that we kind of used, because frankly, you are more or less the expert on this uh, episode where like I had to do a shitload of homework that you assigned me, <laughs> um, including uh, lending me this book called The Films of Bud Bedeker by Robert Knott, which I found to be kind of an invaluable guide. Um, I literally just went, signed up for the Criterion uh, channel online and they have the, right the renowned Western cycle, basically the main six on there because it's like you said, uh, seven run from now, the tall T uh, ride lonesome Comanche station. Uh, what's the other Buchanan rides alone decision at and decision at sundown are like the main six. Plus they have this very short, strange television documentary where he's interviewed by Taylor Hackford um, called, Age four. yeah, Taylor <laughs> Hackford at a four year, like just starring as a four year old fuck boy the entire time with the weirdest like seventies bowl cut going yep. on. But it's called, um, a study in self determination. Yep. I believe the Bud Bedeker story or something. Some it's really long, but it's longer than the actual movie itself. But you can go on there and you can educate yourself very quickly because and I believe this is where you're going with it. All of the movies are basically sub 80 minutes. Like you can rifle off the Bedeker filmography in the same time that it would take you to watch like a Netflix prestige series. Yep. And it's, it's very bite-sized, but full and like packed with meaning. Um, Bedeker is also the kind of filmmaker I like, I love that, you know, the Kaihedi cinema, like he's one of the filmmakers that they, Right. kind of fell in love with where it's these uncelebrated uh, workmen and, and, and journeyman directors in Hollywood often who are not seen as artistically interesting or as worth worthwhile of study. And Bedeker is one of those where he still really hasn't had his due. The fact that we have this book and like, yeah, so people know about him, but they're still right. not having these, long discourses but in the in the filmmaker community like Scorsese like Ride Lonesome is like one of his favorite films yeah he was one of his earliest champions along well like always the French yeah the French and <laughs> Scorsese but like the the Blu-ray set I have which is from uh, Indicator which is like right out of print and, and gorgeous every single disc has an interview with a different filmmaker but so, that one doesn't include Seven Men from Now and Now because of correct. some right stuff. I think with Wayne's company because of that. Well, because they're all Columbia and that's Warner Brothers. So right. they're probably, yeah, they're not going to be together. But I don't even know there's a good, there's not even a good Blu-ray disc of Seven Men from Now. I have a digital copy. The, the um, transfer that's on uh, the Criterion channel is pretty good. Like it looks good. Well, they all are a little spotty here and there, but you're going to get that from movies that are that old, you know, that old and that they're from Columbia as well, which was, was not one of the big, the big boys at that time. And that's all, there's a lot of reasons that I'm drawn to Bedeker. And, and one of the things too, is the budgets he was working with. I mean, he was shooting yes. his films between 14 and 18 days, one to three locations, limited cast. 
they quickly, for most of the films, try to get the fuck out of civilization. Right. Like, they tried to get out to Lone Pine, California, where he shot everything. It was his Monument Valley to, to John Ford. You know, where this is his area. It's like three hours, I guess, north of L.A. But it looks like fucking Mars. You know, it's awesome yeah. rock formations. And, and off of that, too, there's something um, about Bedeker that the similarities are so clear. Like there's a lot of stuff he's going for, like as an auteur together with his screenwriter, Burt Kennedy, who we don't want to forget. Um, and they collaborated since seven men from now, all the way through Comanche station, except for the, um, the decision at sundown was not him uh, at all. It was Charles, Charles Lang. And we'll debate, uh, the other one too, is Buchanan rides alone. Um, might not have any author to its screenplay. Uh, yeah, from, allegedly. From what you explained, it was a little more improv-y. Um, and but why don't you get into, because one of the things that is fascinating about Bud Bedeker is where he comes from, how he's almost like a walking, or was before his passing in, the I believe, the mid-90s, you said. Um, but like he was... More or less, a very like a an old school like man's man who like like we should kind of explain to the audience that there's a reason these movies aren't necessarily widely celebrated or written about because like when they were made, they were made as B pictures. They were yeah. supposed to play on the back end of double bills, drive-ins, like you know, cheapy movie houses because. And for better, like they were jobs. Like this wasn't. That's one of the things that I want to get into too, especially with the, a lot of the quotes from him in the book. Are like he didn't approach it like this was high art at all. He was just like, oh, I got to make a movie, you know, and and this just became my career. Like it was like n- no different than showing up and like managing a restaurant to him. It was just I'm just going to make these things. But explain a little bit where Bedeker came from because he has a fascinating backstory before he even starts making movies. Yeah, it's one of the reasons he is so interesting is his star image, a director image, which at that time really also was not a thing as much as it is today. You didn't have the Tarantinos out there like being this was the height of the studio system jobbers. Exactly. So they had star images for your stars, but not for your directors. Um, And so he so, you know, started out uh, growing, actually spent a lot of his time growing up in Evansville, Indiana, not too far from where I grew up. And after some, he was playing football in college and as the, the stories are all conflict because he's, he's a myth maker around, around himself and he's, he's injured. His leg is injured. In the Taylor Hackford thing, he describes himself as an all American. Yeah, probably untrue. Um, <laughs> there's a little bit of big fish action going on. Oh, sure. With, which I'd love to make a, a version of Bud Bedeker's life mixing in his films with like a big fish narrative of his life. Oh my life. God, what an amazing pitch for a movie that would be. Shit, we should just make that. Yeah. I just, I just came to me while I'm sitting here. We're going to edit this part out so okay. nobody steals it. That's a, that's a really good idea. All right. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> that sounds super braggy, but I'm really excited about that. But um, he ends up going to Mexico and uh, he's in Mexico. And as we were talking before we started recording, he sees his first bullfight. And if, again, if this is the big fish narrative, this is this inciting incident of, it's the most amazing thing he's ever seen. It's man versus beast. There's so much, there's courtliness to it. There's a, um, almost a, a liturgy to the whole, how the whole thing goes. And he ends up training with some of the best uh, bullfighters in Mexico. And one of the things that's interesting is early on in one of his first fights, he's gored up the rectum by a bull and like tears out his insides and somehow heals in six weeks. I don't know how like, 
if I like if I stub my finger, it takes six weeks. This guy had a fucking gore up his ass, like and whiskey and cocaine. A lot of yeah, a lot of whiskey and cocaine. And he he stuck around, and his as you and I were talking as well, his family was trying to cut him off. And he he his parents had passed away when he was young, but he was. Um, actually adopted by the Bedecker family in California and they came from money and his original, his birth name was Oscar Bedecker Jr. was what he went by um, mm-hmm. after, after he was adopted. So not birth name and his family's like, Hey, you got to come back. And his mom who had some connections in Hollywood got him working on blood and sand. I guess a Tyrone power film as the bullfighting uh, consultant, uh, which there weren't a lot of. What a first credit. And I think that was his first credit. And again, to go along with the myth making, he walked them through how to like shoot it and, and do everything. And so the editor, a female editor asked, Hey, could you come in and help me cut this? Um, as he, and he says, that's where I learned filmmaking was weeks spent with her in this editing suite. realizing how, how storytelling can happen in, um, in cinema and it kind of went from there. And like, you know, you read that book or any biography of him and he just slowly works his way up. Uh, like a first, you know, th- he was a stunt man. He like would do basically any job they would give him. But also to your point uh, from the biography and the documentary that's on there, you get the idea that again, he came from money and he had to more or less make a phone call to suddenly make, to like direct his first movie because I, his uh, family was friends with Harry Cohn, who yeah. was like one of the founders of Columbia and president of it all the way up through like the late fifties when he died. And like the way he describes getting his first directorial gig is more or less bullshitting Harry Cohn into thinking that he was able to make a movie and was like, even while I was directing it, I didn't know what I was doing. We were just, you know, putting it together. He would get hired on, I'd never heard this before, but with some of these more B pictures, they would split it in such a way where they would have a different director shoot the first couple days or the last couple days. That's how they would kind of like wean, wean on like young directors. And I guess like he was working on this one project and yeah, I guess the, the Harry Cohn story, I I wrote it down. So I think it's fucking hilarious. Again, this could be completely untrue. Um, I hope it actually is. So yeah, so they're working and the, the director, actual director of the film is, is gone for a moment. Harry Cohn comes on set. Um, Harry Cohn was also sort of a notorious asshole. Big, big classic, Like like old school, like cigar chomping studio mogul type of like, just if you weren't cut, like basically cutting your teeth or making the grade, like you were fired. Just like, yeah, kind of a piece of shit. And, um, so he's, uh, <laughs> Cone, I guess, walks up to Bedecker. He goes, tell that son of a bitch. I want to see him. So Bedecker says, so I said, sorry, sir, he's busy. And he says, God damn it. You son of a bitch. When I tell you to go get him, go get him. And I said, don't ever call me that again. And he said, what do you do? And I said, Mr. Cone, I'll knock you right on your ass because compared to those black bulls coming out of the black hole, you look like the Virgin Mary. And I guess he took him in his office and said, kid, I guess I'm the son of a bitch who's going to have to make something out of you. Again, this is a very Hollywood. Print the legend. But I fucking love it, man. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode is, is and you having read this book now, you have the films, which on their own merit, if you knew nothing about Bedeker, they are solid fucking programmers. Like yeah. they're these, like they're really interesting. You add in his persona and who he was trying to create as this legend. It's like I'm fascinated by him. And so you know, because of all this, like I, you, you're in my, we're in my apartment right now, but like I spent way too much money on that signed poster of Seven Men from Now. And when I got it, you said 
you know, no one's going to want to buy that from you. I was like, yeah, I don't give a shit, but I want it. Like right. there's no resale value. But for me, it's like, it's signed by Burt Kennedy and Burt and Bud Bedeker. So like, yeah, it's total hero worship shit that you just have. Yeah, it's, like it's, a trophy. it's on. Yeah, it's on my wall, and I think it's like it's awesome. Yeah, it, it's a cool fucking poster too. Um, but let's go through it, I guess, chronologically, okay. because I watched all of these movies in order, starting with Seven Men from Now. So let's start there, um, because the 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 big ingredient here, as you kind of already mentioned, was both the casting of Randolph Scott which came at Wayne's insistence or at least suggestion. He says something along the lines of like, he's got nothing going on. Yeah. It was something very dismissive at first. Well, because he didn't, that was the thing is like, even in the book, they kind of go into it on how like he was a Hollywood golden boy during like the thirties and forties. And then was more or less relegated. He almost has like a Rick Dalton type story just before the sixties because he was more or less relegated to, appearing in what they refer to in the book, one of my favorite words ever, as Odies. Odies. Um, Which were, it's kind of a slang term for like trash, throwaway, jobber westerns. Yeah, kind of of hillbilly pit kind of feel to it. matinee idol type bullshit that didn't require a whole lot from anybody involved and you got a paycheck and like he just stayed employed. So Wayne was more or less like, I really like this guy because they had an association going back many years. Um, he doesn't have a whole lot get going on, but I think this would work for him, which ends up being kind of the stroke of genius. The second stroke of genius is simply Burt Kennedy. Burt Kennedy is, he was someone that I kind of came to, again, through Bedeker, but I was like, man, everybody better gets all this, you know, attention. And then I was like, wow, but they got the same screenwriter for most every film. And it's almost yeah. like the setup of like, you know, Schrader, De Niro and Scorsese, you know, you had this like perfect triumvirate of like a great writer, great director and a great star. And when well, I'm glad you threw that setup in there because seven men from now is a movie that Schrader has already kicked around with remaking. I believe his is uh, nine called men. nine men from now. And originally it was supposed to be Ethan Hawke and Willem Dafoe, but I guess after we hung out the other night and we're talking about it and just kind of bullshitting about these movies as I was working my way through, I guess Ethan Hawke's off the project, but Willem Dafoe is still very much involved with it. Oh my God. Here's like, we'll get into it in a minute because Schrader, because Schrader's even uh, describing his remake of Seven Men as a quote unquote metatextual western that's going to deconstruct like the ways they were made and stuff so i'm like yeah all in just put that shit into my veins right now because the randolph scott character that is uh, created by uh, bedeker kennedy and scott um is perfect for for schrader to kind of bring into his you know god's lonely man uh archetype that he created over the years from like Travis Bickle on because like Scott, as you said to me before we started recording more or less plays the same dude through six movies. Yeah. And it's, I was reading something yesterday about the Western in particular is especially that era of like fifties and sixties really relies on star image and star persona 
where you show up and you don't have to take the time in the script to characterize your lead actor because, hey, it's a Randolph Scott movie. It's a John Wayne movie. Like, you walk into Rio Bravo. They're signing up for the persona. Like, whoever buys a ticket, they're buying it because, like, they expect a certain thing from this guy. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's John Wayne in, you know, Rio Bravo, John Wayne in El Dorado playing the same, literally the same fucking character. It's basically a remake. And well, it's also like this is pre Brando, pre like the, the the revolution in acting. Like, there's no naturalism really any in these films or anything. Like, you have Kazan and st- stuff like starting to emerge in this time period, but you're very much working in that old Hollywood mode, or, or of like what you said, like people sign up for exactly what you get on the box. Yeah, and that's and that's Randolph Scott, and you know, starting with Seven Men from now, and it. It really starts the the series off right because you have pretty much the elements you're going to find in every single film following this. And that is most of them start with Randolph Scott riding alone or walking alone through desert, you know, almost like a Paris, Texas opening. Right. You don't know you. He's already on a mission. Like Seven Men has him emerging in a rainstorm. In a, he's in a rainstorm. In the desert. And then he walks into a fucking cave and it's one of the coolest openings and confronts these two men. And basically they're, you find out they're the two men who killed someone he loves. And it sets up, again, this, this similar jumping off point for most of these films is someone was killed in his past or someone was usually a woman. There's um, always a mystery around his character that unravels slowly as we kind of learn more and more. And like, it's either people around him are whispering or like his interactions. And he finally like more or less confesses, I'm doing this because blank. Yes. And it's usually quite late. I mean, for yeah. usually these are 70, 75 minute movies and it's not till like minute 50, 55 yeah. before we're really getting that um that information and it it really like imbues the movie with this like kind of awesome narrative tension because he's so fucking charismatic and you really like want to watch him do what he's doing and he's still telling you who his character is you know he's on a mission but all his character for the most part in his films you have this very courtly is the way that um, a lot of people describe his characters as in Bedecker films where he's very uh uh kind to women um, in a lot of ways, not in the book, they refer to him as the Virginian gentleman. Yeah, like he's very much the old South archetype of like, yes, you, ma'am, you, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. You're you're always polite. You're you don't swear. You go to church every Sunday. Like you present yourself a certain way. Like you are just a Southern gentleman. And and that's I mean, from what I've read of of Scott, like that's kind of who he was. Right. Like he was like known to be this very kind person, very lovable kind of person to work with and quiet. Yeah. Very quiet. And, and, and what's interesting is, you know, seven men from now, it sets up pretty much the same plot too, of he ends up, he's on his mission, ends up with another group of people who kind of bend their, blend their missions together to usually get someplace else. Right. You see this in ride lonesome. You see this in Comanche station as well. That they're the two closest, like those three are almost identical in plot. These movies barely have plots. Like it's just, one thing happens, usually two or three groups of people come together, there's a conflict, then the movie ends. It, and 
I agree with you. Um, it's it's definitely not the plot big moments of an epic western, right? Yeah. Um, of big character moments, but you're not watching High Noon. You're not watching High Noon. You're not watching The Searchers. You're not. You're definitely not watching Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Right. You know, which is just like so nuanced with all these like these narrative threads. They almost feel like sketches. Like you have a sketch of an idea of like a narrative that you halfway recognize that these guys can more or less play with characters during their 14 day shooting schedule. And that's the thing. Like that's where these films really shine is the characters because you have Randolph Scott bringing Randolph Scott to the table, but you have the most, like one of the, the kind of like flourishes of every Bedecker film is a charismatic fucking villain. Like here you have Lee Marvin, you have Lee Marvin and one of my favorite Lee Marvin roles. I mean, seriously, he's incredible. He's, he's, he's very young. I mean, young compared to, you know, also (laughs) great name masters. That's his name. And Marvin also, again, all these things are set in motion in Seven Men from Now and played out in other films. But there's there's so many similar scenes where there's an undercurrent of emasculation because you have, um, on one hand, you have Randall Scott, who is completely confident in his masculinity, but doesn't have to show it. Like he's just like he he he's bringing like in in seven men. It's now. that stoicism. Stoicism. He's like I'm a I'm a man. I'm a solid man. The women look at him like oh he's mysterious. Like he's he's good. And in seven men from now you have this. He runs into this couple who are are going west and uh, going from the east. And you know he even she's like we're from out east. He's like yeah I could tell. Um, yeah, because their wagon is stuck in basically a mud hole. Yeah, it was sucking sucking the mud. He helps get them out, and and the woman is very is very beautiful. He of course treats her uh, with great deference. Her husband is adult, um, and he well, he's the Western version of a soft boy. He's he's which a, becomes a re- as you just said become, becomes like a recurring theme throughout these movies. And what did they, what do we say the word that uh, Bedecker and Kennedy's gentle? Yes, gentle, he's a very gentle, very man. gentle, and and they're really not talking about. Um, any kind of being effeminate, it's more, it's, it's people. You're not who, hard. You're not like hard. You, you can't handle the, uh, let's say the conditions of, of the, the space that they're living in. Like that woman wouldn't look to you to protect her more or less. Yes. And, and the husband, um, yeah. Uh, Walter Reed, John Greer in, um, seven men from now is is very nice. Like you see why why she loves him. He's very kind. Um, and kind of a kind of a doof. He, he's a doof, but he's sweet. And the first scene you see him, like he's immediately kind of like chastised by uh, by Randall Scott, your hero, where he's like, mm-hmm. "Hey, can you help us get the you know when uh, you hop up there and help drive our our station, our, drive our wagon out of the mud?" And he's like, "Get up there yourself." Like yeah. he's already putting lines down of like, what kind of a man are you? And there's the scene in the film, which I think is the probably the best scene in the movie is the scene in the wagon and the, during the rain. And yeah, because they, they more or less, he helps them pull the wagon out of the mud and then they get hijacked by these bandits more or less because they ride along with them the entire time. And then, not quite hijacked, but they're 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 not trusting. They insert them. themselves into their lives. Let's right. say the hijacking. I mean, the Tall T has a very similar uh, kind of narrative trajectory. Right. That's a right full lonesome. on, yeah. That's a full on hijacking in the in that movie. But like this, they kind of insert themselves, and then again, the one thing that I like about this movie that it still might be my favorite out of the ones that we watched is because there's two mysteries that are slowly revealed. You have Randolph Scott's character. And then you also have late in the game, there's a reveal about uh, the husband 
that we find out that kind of complicates everything and, and makes it real interesting because he's more or less, there's something fascinating about it because Randolph Scott too feels like less of a man because when we find out, uh, I guess we can spoil these 60 year old yeah. movies or whatever, but like we more or less find out that he's hunting the men who are responsible for his wife's death, but he blames himself because he was the sheriff who got voted out of this like Colorado town, uh, was offered like a deputy position and was too prideful to take it. So his wife had to go to work to more or less support them. And there was a, a robbery at the Wells Fargo that she worked at and she was killed. And now he's on a mission for revenge for the uh, seven to hunt these dudes it. down. Um, so he views it as almost like I failed my wife and she's the reason she's dead because I wasn't big enough of a man to swallow my pride, take this position. And like, I put her in harm's way by more or less being an asshole. And like, then we find out that the wagon train through coincidence of, of him helping them, he, uh, he has the the money. The the husband is, it has the money that was stolen and he's delivering it for these bandits. And like, you're like, holy shit, because he, both men are more or less trying to prove their masculinity in one way or another. Uh, Randolph Scott is trying to uh, redeem his, let's say, where this guy is almost trying to prove to his wife that he's worthy as a man because he knows that he's gentle, let's say, the entire time. He's not uh, ignorant to that fact. Um, And then it all ends in blood and tears. Because and there's a an unrequited love between Randolph Scott and the wife who's played by uh, Gail Russell. Gail Russell, who by all accounts was a hardcore drunk on the the set of this movie to the point of not being able to even remember her lines, but had a very very tragic backstory because uh, it's one of the things about this book that I really really liked is that it's very well researched and. It also reminds you how reading about old Hollywood, particularly women in old Hollywood, is an incredibly depressing affair because more or less Gail Russell was trying to make a career for herself and found herself on the casting couch of numerous Hollywood power players and was just like more or less raped by numerous studio executives and had to drink Uh, to soften her nerves to be in front of the camera because all of these rapes had more or less taken away her confidence as like a performer. And thus, like, she never was able to actually have a career because she was so incapacitated by booze. They they tell stories about her being on the the set of Seven Men from Now to where, like, Bedeker would literally have to take her behind, like, wagons and, like, talk her through and be like, it's okay, We'll get to, like we'll get through this together, and like knew what was going on with her, but it was like we don't know what to do with this woman, you know. It's it's super, you know, sad to hear, and there's a lot of yeah, like when you we go back to this era and, and read on 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 men and women of just the the hard living and the yeah <laughs> uh, in that time period, but well, even Randolph Scott that we'll get into, I'm sure in a, in a minute, yeah. Um, that's what's up. Should we move to the next film just to like, um, well, no, that's what I was saying. Like if you, if you want to jump into the tall T after this, because we've got a few to get through. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean the, the movie all comes together in a way 
that you watch it and you go, I totally get why Paul Schrader would want to make this. It's about the the lonely man who exists by a code, helps these people out, has an unrequited love that he more or less represses. Because in one violent scene. Yeah, there's there's one <laughs> blast of violence. There's one amazing, you know, villain turn. And then it's over. I just want to know, like, how much uh, poetic journaling is going to take place in Nine Men from now. Because, like, if it's Defoe as the Randolph Scott character just sitting by firelight, talk, like, writing long, elegant passages about, like, how he's less of a man and doesn't measure up in the Old West, just count, just inject that shit directly into my veins. Count me in 100%, yeah. you know. It, it, it is cool when you find filmmakers like this who obviously inspired. I mean, if Scorsese loved him, Schrader loves him, you yeah. know, and you see these kind of like kernels or like, you know, the, the acorn that will grow into the kind of films we love today. It's like, Oh, like this is the kind of shit that Schrader was watching when he was younger, you know, that kind of got into his head when he's writing his pieces. So, um, next up we have the tall T, which is an Elmore Leonard adaptation from a short story or short novel that he wrote called the captives. I believe, I believe so that again, according to everybody involved, this is a very faithful adaptation. I've never actually read it. Um, but go because you like this movie quite a bit. I love I love Tall T. And this was again the film I saw in that class. And a lot of people count this as the almost like apex for Boddicker. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is considered by a lot of like critics and, and just fans as like the ultimate, right? And um guess it's to give the a, a similar uh setup for the plot here. Um he plays uh Pat Brennan, um, who was a, an ex-ramrod, which is, uh, I love that term from the Wild West of he was the, uh, basically, I guess, the main horse breaker. Kind of like a bronco buster. Bronco type. buster for uh, for different ranches, and which was good which was good money. And then he's just, kind of a doof in this, too. And like the first couple scenes, because he even goes and like bets to try and get like a, a seed bull. Yep. And gets fucked up by that bull. Uh, another similar narrative thread for the films where he's not getting revenge he is, uh, I got me a stake, you know, S-T-A-K-E. You right. know, I got a stake in some land. I got some money together. It's the, you know, the the male dream of the Wild West of, you know. He has got, very simple dreams of just wanting to own his own spread of land, tend to his flock, maybe marry a good woman, have some kids, and die at 65. Yep, totally. And he, he's in that mindset. Um, and as you said, goes to win a seed bowl, um, bets his horse, loses his horse, um, ends up on a... More or less hitchhiking with his buddy, with the stagecoach that gets robbed. Yeah, so he he hitchhikes and gets picked up by his friend who runs runs the stagecoach, um, which is on the stagecoach has a couple played by um, Maureen O'Sullivan who plays uh, Doretta Mims, um, and then you have uh, John Hubbard Willard Mims, and mm -hmm. Willard is is the the soft man of this, but not just soft. He's less the soft. He's more, um, he's a shyster that he is. Cause he's married her for his money, for her money. More she's an old maid. She's the old maid daughter of the richest man in the territory. Uh, I think the banker and, yeah. um, it's clear to everybody. Uh, and she kind of knows that she, she's a spinster for life and this guy's only in it for the cash. Yeah. And they make it pretty clear. Um, and they are, as you said earlier, um, this is the one where it's actually a kidnapping right. where they're at, um, 
at one of the like a stagecoach station, which is also a setting uh, at a lot of these films um, where they end up. It's a great place for people to also, come together. To come together. It's a cheaper set. Um, it's, it's basically one building um, and a couple horses, and they end up there where they run into Richard Boone, uh, Frank Usher, and then his uh, his two men. Chink, played by Henry Silva, um, and then Billy Jack, uh, Skip Homier, and and in case you're wondering, Henry Silva is most definitely supposed to be Chinese. Yes, it's offensive. Um, it, it's offensive, but at the same but time, also hilarious. But also, he's a great fucking villain. Um, well, he's it's Henry fucking. It's just one of those things to where like a, another thing that's great about running through these renowned westerns is that. Every one of them has a character actor that you're just like, oh shit, this guy's in this. Like first one, Lee Marvin, not just a character actor, one of the biggest movie stars in American cinema history. This one, you have Henry Silva showing up. Richard Boone um, from Have Gun Will Travel. R- Richard Boone shows up in this one too. And Richard Boone arguably steals the entire movie here. Um, you know, you have LQ Jones showing up in, I believe, not Buchanan. Buchanan. Buchanan, and Buchanan Rides Alone. James um, Coburn. James Coburn. And is that his first, first movie role? Yeah. He shows up in that. Lee Van Cleef uh, shows up in Ride Lonesome. Like Parnell Roberts from Trapper John and Bonanza is, yeah. is the main other it, one of the main bad guys. And it's just a straight up. If you're into this time period and these types of actors, it's just a murderer's row. You just like, Oh shit. Like I, yeah. Again, like my first time watching these, I had no idea what to expect. Or and who. Henry Silva is 100% doing his Henry Silva thing in the tall T, even though he's like really, he's in brown face. So that's not great. But like, he is very young. He's very handsome, but he's still doing the, the Henry Silva. Like, yeah, let me just shoot this motherfucker. And you're like, Oh, okay. Just chewing his words. Oh, and, and he's like, he's like mad to open his mouth. You know, he's like, Oh, he's like kind of mumbling. I love him so much. He's what's really cool. Real nightmare face. Oh yeah. It's terrifying. I mean, like the only thing scarier than him is his Dick Tracy makeup in Dick Tracy, where they basically accentuated his already fucked up face. It wasn't like, <laughs> yeah, he looks like a deadite. Yeah, but it's just the dead-out version of Henry Silva. Oh, yeah. versus other people's like, oh, they put a lot of makeup. Just, I can't even tell it's him. It's like, no, that's just accentuated Henry or like, Silva. Or remember features. the Jim Carrey movie, The Mask? Yeah. Like, that's the same thing. It's like, what if Henry Silva just wore the mask the entire movie? Oh, God. <laughs> Scary man. Um, anyway, let's keep going to the tall T. Not someone you want to see in a dark alley. Um, but the tall T, you know, basically spent most of the time at, uh, at an old mine shaft. And so right. it, which is a really cool set. There was, it's a little, again, one of the things I like about Bedeker is he really knows how to find a place and like, and like if this were a play, he knows where to find, like, this is where the, the bulk of the movie is going to take place. And you have the interior of this old mine, you have the campfire and some rocks to hide behind. So it's like, you can see, it's almost like, Chekhov's setup of like we're gonna use all this in well, some it's another way. one of those like budgetary things too to where it's almost like we just need a cool setting for these people to talk to each other and fill the time before the next shootout it just happens that he had Burt Kennedy putting the fucking yeah. words into these actors mouths yeah but it's it is still a dynamic image and it's a cool like no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing okay, with you cool, it's sorry. just one of those things <laughs> where like he had a real eye for, uh, for yes setting but like you're in one setting for a lot of these movies. Like in um, uh, Seven Men From Now, I, I kind of cut you off a little bit, but what the best scene in that movie takes place in a covered wagon during a rainstorm where Lee Marvin more or less sexually assaults... Verbally. Uh, yeah, verbally, the, this 
woman because he knows her her husband's a big pussy and can't defend her against him. In this, it's just Randolph Scott and um, I can't remember the actress's Richard, name. Oh, oh, oh um. Uh, Maureen Sullivan. Maureen Sullivan talking in a mine shaft, and then him and Richard Boone uh, just going on monologues, which is the best part of the movie because this becomes more or less Boone's film yes. because it's about a guy who just wants more or less like a best friend or maybe a boyfriend. So, yes, one of the things I remember when we've watched this film and I, I really, I couldn't find the article we read for the class, but it did get into the homosexual undertones and subtext of the film. And you could definitely do a queer reading of this film, no matter what, um, and of their relationship where, especially for Richard Boone's character, he has been on the trail with these young guns. Now he's the older one. He's supposed to be like in his forties. They're in their like late teens, early twenties. And he's sick of their bullshit because especially the way they talk about women. And so they're talking about, oh, we're going to go to town and we're going to like, you know, buy some prostitutes. And you could see him get visibly upset when he hears them chatting about this. And I think it's one scene in particular. He walks away from that. He's like, well, I'm just going to go talk, talk to, you know, uh, Randolph Scott. And it really is. I mean, like not too much queer subtext. It's more of like, I'm looking for an equal. Like I'm looking for someone to have a conversation with because this trail is lonely and I'm riding with fucking idiots and I'm, I'm looking for some kind of connection. He even said, he goes, I like you. Like he tells, he tells Randall Scott, he's like, you know what? I like you. Even though you're such an asshole to me. Cause Randall Scott keeps being like, I don't want to be your friend. Um, but it's a really, it's a really, like you said, it is Richard Boone's film and he's really just dynamic. Um, he's incredible. He's it. really amazing. And, and again, you think of this as before, this is before How Gun Will Travel, before he had his TV show, before, I guess, it's Paladin, where he played Paladin, mm -hmm. um, my dad's favorite Western, uh, when he was a kid. Um, <laughs> I bought him the first set on DVD for Christmas one year, season one, I remember. Um, but there's, like you said, it's all character stuff. It's also a lot of, and there's a quote I wanted to read real quick, and it kind of gets to what you were saying about Burt Kennedy's writing also how Bedecker sets it up and it's almost like it's like a play, right? And Andrew Saris, the great, you know, film critic, um, who wasn't always uh the easiest on <laughs> on films. Anyone. On anybody, um, he really liked Bedecker. Like he saw something special in him, and he wrote um that his films are quote constructed partly as allegorical odysseys and partly as floating poker games where every character took turns at bluffing about his hand until the final showdown elemental, but not elementary. That is a fucking great quote. Yeah, that's that, great. That, that's, that's just, I was going to text you about earlier, but that's just fucking gold. Like it's so nice because I completely agree where like you're saying it's low on plot because it's all these like, little betrayals like in the scene that's like built into the dialogue, almost like hateful eight style, you know, that's a little bit more extreme with everyone's got a secret, oh, yeah. you know, they, they go all the way, but it's still like kind of a similar idea of like, it's one location. So how do you keep it tense? And they're really well constructed just at a scene level too of why is everyone here? And as we get into the other films with, with this film, we know Richard Boone's a bad guy. We know what he wants. We know the two guys are bad guys. When we get into seven men from now, like, you know, with Lee Marvin, Definitely to Parnell Roberts and Ride Lonesome, these people who they have a history, like they know each other from their past. And it's like, why are you here? I think you might want to kill me, but you're not sure. So it adds this tension of like, you have your big bad guy, you have Randall Scott, and you have the kind of guy in the middle um, yeah. in a lot of those films. And that would be um, the, kind of the, the Chet Atkins um, 
Chet Atkins, I believe. Yeah, in uh, right. in Comanche Station. So, um, yeah. Well, it, what's funny though is that you bring up the queer subtext and everything, and like Bedeker would completely reject that because part of his weird uh, self mythologizing, let's say, is that he rejected any kind of deeper interpretation mm. of his movies. Like there was a term. Uh, that was kind of tossed about is that people would call them psychological Westerns and he would like scoff at them. And Kennedy would kind of join him in it too, because he had a famous quote um, that I was just trying to find here in the book, but can't, but more or less said the Western is about nothing. It became an infamous kind of mantra for him because like he just believed that he was making, or at least wanted to present to you that he believed he was making these, maybe not shallow entertainments, but they were just what you see is what you get. Um, like there is a quote in here that I found in the book where they, they talk about how like uh, a reviewer once asked him like about Comanche station. Uh, the, there's a scene with like a bunch of Indians or native Americans, excuse me, that uh, surround Randolph Scott's character. And they're like, Ooh, we could kind of interpret this as like what it felt like for you to be a bullfighter in the Coliseum, like, and to know on all sides, you were essentially beset by danger. And he was like, wrong. No, what that is about is that Randolph Scott is in a hell of a lot of trouble because these Indians want to kill him. And it's like, he, again, with the, the kind of, uh, drunk uncle way that he presented his own mythology <laughs> is that you didn't know whether or not he believed that, or if this was just part of the print, the legend thing he was doing to where it's like, ah, I don't think about it too much, but like he devoted himself to making these things for so long that like after a while you have to take pride or think that there's some deeper meaning to your own art, right? Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think, and when we talk about subtext of any kind, it doesn't always have to be intentional, right? You know, sure. that there's, there's stuff happening in this film. And it, with how fast these guys were making them too, that a lot of this may have been inadvertent. Right. Exactly. And, but and again, as we know, doesn't mean it's not there, right. you know, that, you know, um, and I remember in, in, in school, like talking about the idea of like queer film theory was not always about homosexuality, but a way of reading against the text and not for what, you know, was there. Yeah, it, was and the, it, it was the viewer bringing themselves to the material, not vice versa. Yeah, and you could definitely do that with this as well. Okay, you, did Ten times over. Yeah. Especially once we... Because here's the thing uh, that I found real fascinating is that I watched the first two, and then I've been doing my usual Halloween uh, horror movie a day thing, so I kind of took a break, blew through a whole bunch of stuff, and then saw a bunch of new stuff too. Um and then we hung out the other night and you told me something that I had no idea about because it's not even really written about in the book here either is that Randolph Scott was a closeted gay man, not too unlike uh, Rock Hudson. Um, and like right down to having a much whispered about romantic relationship with Clark Gable. No, it was, um, Carrie Grant, Carrie Grant. That's it. So yeah, there was a, and again, like, I Clark, have, <laughs> Clark Gable, not at all. No, um, uh, I have, you know, zero evidence of this. Um, but re reading up on, um, some history, it was like talked about, obviously, um, 
one of the things that it comes from is Cary Grant, who has been written about was as being also closeted yes. um, and much more documented in terms of people writing about it in, in the, in like biographies and the like. Yeah. Um, maybe rock Hudson's not the best comparison just because like that was eventually confirmed. Right. Like, yeah. Was, yeah. And it was, it, it became of, an AIDS activist and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. You have all the history of, of his relationship, friendship with Doris Day. And which right. is, um, and you have with, there's this, it's a life magazine um, photo spread where it's, young Cary Grant, young Randolph Scott, like when that, that first era of Scott's uh, filmography you're talking about, where it was like the thirties where he was kind of playing swashbuckling heroes, like Seahawk kind of films. Right. They're both just like super handsome. Like, like they're tan, they're living like Malibu in like a bungalow together. And like the piece for 1935 was like, watch out ladies. Like these two bachelors are on the prowl. No wise for us. And it's like, in hindsight, you're like, duh, you know? And again, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to be judgmental here. I find it very interesting though, that there's some stuff that when you get into the character that was built around Randolph Scott, especially in these films uh, of being so courtly being almost asexual, like he, you know, in terms of what you see on screen, the women view him right in this mysterious way, but he is bringing nothing in terms of desire except for, it's not really until Buchanan rides alone that you get a lot of overt sexuality. Buchanan and definitely in Comanche station. Right. Yeah. Where, you know, he, I think one of the best lines, um, I'm going to, I'm going to misquote here, but when basically has helped, uh, deliver this woman to her husband and, and says, he's like, you know, I've had been able to stop thinking about my wife for years and being with you. It's the first time I haven't for a while. So I'm obliged. And it's just this really like great thing he, of like, he was in boner town. Yeah. But it's like, thank you for distracting me with your beauty for me. Like thinking about my dead fucking wife, you know? And it's, I, I just find it interesting to bring that, especially to Tall T, when there is the subtext there um, of of the kind of extra textual stuff that, that that Randall Scott was bringing to the role. Right. Yeah. And before we get um, into decision at sundown, um, the one, the other thing I do kind of want to note is like how fucking brutal these movies are, especially for the time period. Yes. Like Tall T opens with a man and his son getting viciously murdered off screen off but, screen but still but they it's what's so i agree it's it's really does not pull any punches in terms of like what whatever you see it's what happens like the, the story of the of the movie because like yeah he he meets this kid at the beginning when he's riding through and the kid's so sweet with his dad they're the the station keeper and his son mm-hmm. and he's like hey i got a nickel could you get me a cherry flavored um uh candy cane from town and it's this really sweet thing where, you know, Randolph Scott's like, of course, you know, I got you and I, I, all the time in the world for you, son. And so he, he's carrying back this candy even when he loses his horse. This kind of shows his character. And he gets there. And, of course, Richard Boone and his men are already at the station. And he's like, hey, where the station? He's like, where's the station? And he goes, and and, and uh, Henry Sewell's like, he's back in that. Uh, he's that, in the well. He's in the well. And then he's like, I think he's picking at his hand or something kind of like distractedly. He goes, And his boy's like, he's in there with him. And yeah. it's just so like in that great Henry Silva like oh, just totally cold psychopath just way. Chills. Like it's so fucked up. And the the shotgun under the chin, mm-hmm. like it, when he he kills a guy, he tricks again. Again, a common theme in these these or common narrative thread in these films is him being smarter too. That he he he's always he's always playing people against one another, especially when things are. Uh, looking dire. Uh, and sometimes that is through befriending the younger man of the group. I'm like, Hey, I'm going to teach you 
what it is to be good and kind of pull you away from the the leader you're following and kind of bring you to my side. Um, or it's just talking to them because them they're stupid. And he does that with Henry Silva and the other the other younger man in um, Tall T. Right. Talks one into going in with the woman, like, hey, she's in there waiting for you, and ends up getting a shotgun and putting it under his chin and blasting his fucking brains out. Right. Like, it's brutal. Yeah, and to go back to that Saris quote, um, they point out something similar in the book, too, is that uh, this movie is, as Sarah said, uh, elemental but not elementary is because they point out, they're like, every character wants basically one thing. Randolph <laughs> Scott wants a spread of land to, to live on. Um, uh, Boone wants the money. Boone's character just wants a friend and... <laughs> The two henchmen for Boone just want to kill. Yeah. That's all they want. Kill and fuck. Yeah. Like that's all they they're do. Primal. They're, they're, yeah. they're exactly just reduced to uh, the most basic instincts, if you, you know, we could say. Um, but let's move on to Decision at Sundown, which is your least favorite and the movie that I think I liked the most because I enjoyed how idiosyncratic it is. Yeah, it's it's my least favorite. I don't dislike it. But it's my least favorite of of this of this cycle. Um, it's sure, the, it's the one I watched the least. Um, I rewatched it, obviously preparing for the uh, the podcast. And there's elements I like, but the there is just overall a case of the slows narratively in the middle. Um, well, it's a mess, it's, like narratively. It's it's a slog. It's a mess. But the the basic setup is. Um, very similar to Randolph Scott comes to town. He he's he's bent on revenge for something that has to do with his wife. You're not sure what what changes what the difference is with this film, which the one thing I do like, and I maybe you're talking about the idiosyncratic side of it, is that he he has been he's a jilted lover, um, a jilted husband uh, whose wife he thinks was seduced by this asshole. He's been tracking a man he's never seen before comes to this town. It's that man's wedding day, marrying Karen Steele, which we'll put a bookmark there and get back to her in a second. Um, and this is uh, the, the head of the town who more or less controls everything with an iron fist. His name's uh, Tate Kimbrough. Great. And he's name. played by John Carroll, who I want to get into a little bit because he's almost like the dark dimension version of Clark Gable. Oh, interesting. Like he well, looks like him. It looks exactly like him, but also, well, we'll just get into it now. Apparently Carol, uh, they were trying to make him a big start MGM, uh, when Gable was overseas in the war and he, you know, got a whole bunch of roles. Uh, Bedeker even talks about how he was more or less like a wild man, like offset. Mm. Um, in that the reason Bedeker, uh, cast him in the movie was because he watched him lose 42,000 in one hand of like craps or something and just shrug it off and walk away. Now the reason Carol, who I think Carol's the best part of the movie. I think he gives an incredible performance in this as like uh, a, a weird villain who becomes not so much the hero, but maybe the most sympathetic character while Randolph Scott's hero quote unquote becomes like the most despicable person. Like it, it, it's weirdly subversive again in a way that it might not even mean to be, but, uh, Carol, uh, more or less lost his career for two reasons. There was apparently some kind of scandal in the mid forties where he threw this, 
all nude swimming party at his mansion, which almost sounds like a Brian Singer, like precursor type thing. Yeah. But then also uh, was uh, accused by an elderly woman, uh, an elderly rich widow, I believe of swindling her of a quarter million dollars in some kind of weird, like pyramid scheme type thing, which is kind of his character Um, in this movie. Exactly. Yeah. So like better cast the right guy who looked like Clark, Clark Gable and was kind of a scumbag all off the set too. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I did not know that part of the history, but it makes sense. And I, I agree. I really love, I think he's the best part the best part of the movie. Um, in my opinion, in he's terms- just so fucking charismatic the entire time. Cause he has his, he's marrying, you know, the, the first, uh, first daughter of the town, the first daughter of the town, because it's, it's not the doctor who she's the daughter of the mayor. The mayor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause the doctor becomes the moral conscience of the movie who, who loves her for real. Yeah. Who loves her for real. And, and is more or less interpreting the, the conflict between, uh, uh the, the, uh, to the hero and our, our villain, let's say. Um, but like, He's got his lady on the side. He's got his woman that he's supposed to marry. And then the whole movie, again, to, to bring it back to your idea of um, these play, these movies kind of taking place in one location for the most part, is that uh, Randolph Scott storms in the wedding, more or less goes, I object, and I'm going to kill that motherfucker. And pulls and a gun in the pulls church. Pulls a gun in the church. And they they chase him off, and he uh, holes up in, like, is it a, it's almost like a stable house, I believe, or yeah, something? Yeah, with it's a his, stable. Mm-hmm. With his, like, best friend, and his best friend the whole time, who was also really, really good in the movie, um, and has been in a couple Bedeker movies. Uh, I'm looking up his name right now. Noah Berry Jr., or Beery Jr., uh, plays Sam, his best buddy. They hole up together, and Sam the whole time is like, you know, this is probably a bad idea. Like, idea. like why are you doing this? And then Tate Kimbrough uh, is dealing with the town more or less turning against him in real time on the day of, of his wedding or what's supposed to be his wedding. Cause there's even like a huge sign up in the saloon that they go in. That's like drinks for everybody or on Tate Kimbrough. Um, Everybody in town is invited to the wedding. It's supposed to be this big celebration that more or less falls apart and ends with him losing all his power, getting run out of town because the town is more or less awakened to the idea that like he's been taking advantage of them the whole time. And then he also loses his wife, but then gains his mistress who as, he actually like, his loves, new companion, who loves her, who loves him too, who loves him for real as well. It's all about these like who actually loves who in this movie and who and almost like the the true interpretation of like what love means and how men can distort that notion let's say because the big reveal about Randolph Scott's character at the end is that his wife was a fucking whore like and he was going after Tate Kimbro because he he quote unquote stole her but there's this great uh line at the end that uh, Karen Steele. Kimbrough's. That's not Karen Steele. Oh, Karen yeah, Steele plays Valerie the, French. Yeah, Valerie French plays the mistress. Karen Steele plays um, the wife. And she says to him, to Randolph Scott, you know, you had a woman, but you never had a wife. Something along those lines of like, because like this woman didn't love you, you were just there and she just cheated on you all the time and like you were too blind to fucking see it. And the movie more or less ends with him riding out of town disgraced. And drunk. And drunk. 
And you're like, what a we- it's a real weird fucking movie, but also starts not a cycle, but there's a two picture run here where Charles Lang is is credited as the screenwriter and not Burt Kennedy. You could feel this not a Burt Kennedy. And and movie. It, it it feels significantly different because it's not so much about Randolph Scott, it's about the these townsfolk and how they're it's almost like I know this is an odd comparison, but Halloween kills. Just came out. Oh, yeah. Um, not a good movie. I hated that movie. Um, I didn't hate it like you did. I've watched it twice now. And like I'm, I've warned to, or warmed to certain aspects of it. But it was weird to watch this in close uh, proximity to uh, decision, decision at sundown. Uh, because they both become about the town in a weird way yeah. to where Halloween kills is this microcosmic, like very much a David Gordon green movie. It's about how the town reacts and comes together and becomes about all these multiple strands and characters and how they react to like this horrific event invading Haddonfield. And that's really what decision at sundown becomes too. It's about how these people interpret this stranger walking in and causing all this violence and ruckus and what that actually means to the power structures that are around them. Obviously I doubt David Gordon green was like, you know what movie would really influence this Bud Boddicker's decision at sundown, but it was just interesting to, to, in my brain to like watch them in such close proximity because like they shared weird thematic threads together. Um, because like by the end of this movie, you're more like, I don't know whose side I'm on. Like, and it's, I, I agree. It's really interesting to compare it to Halloween kills. Cause I, I do agree. It's, you know, the town is the main character more. There's definitely no character and main character in Halloween kills. That's for fucking sure. Um, it's about Haddonfield and yeah. it's about, it's, you can see where they're going with the political stuff in Halloween kills, not to derail this already probably long episode, but like decision at sundown does the same thing because it's just kind of like, Oh man, it, it awakens and, and like other men rise up and there is almost like mob violence a lot like Halloween kills that rises because these other men rise up and are like, wait, we should have power. What's going on here? And like, I, I don't know. I just found it very, very fascinating but we should talk about how uh, the Charles Lang of it all and also the Karen Steele of it all, because both are, let's say, integral uh, parts of the Bedeker career, because Karen Steele became Bedeker's mistress or love because he uh, got divorced right at the end of the production of this movie there's some conflict over whether he had already started an affair with Karen Steele or not, but she became his girlfriend. And as they put it in the book may have cost him all of his friends because she was, uh, he was infatuated with her, wanted to make her into a sex symbol. She was not very talented at all. Um, and also apparently the epitome of quote unquote difficult to work with. Um, but also the Charles Lang of it, 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 it kind of shows how Bedeker would uh, enable his buddies, let's say, because here he's putting his girlfriend into the movie. But Charles Lang was just one of his best friends, wanted to have a screenwriting career. And Bedeker was like, OK, cool, we'll write this movie for me and we'll pay you for it. And like he wrote it and like everybody considers this a quote unquote minor movie because mostly of the, the storytelling and screenwriting problems. 
I think it's kind of fascinating as like this weird speed bump in the middle of this um, very pronounced cycle or very important cycle within a genre. Um, but at the same time, it's very weird. And you, like you said, you, you notice the difference right away. Yeah. It's very, you know, as we go through the rest of these films, like the plots are pretty much identical to three or four of them. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's not just like, Oh, we're someone almost like, no, it's the same story. Isn't um, it, it's almost like that old, is it a Shakespeare quote? That's like, there's only three types of stories. Like only three stories tell. to tell. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, it's, this that. is like, there's only one story the, to tell. <laughs> well, and he, and they found, they found their niche and they found, I mean, like Kennedy has a gift, um, sure. for, for that. And it's interesting because Kennedy, um, went on to be his own filmmaker, you know, and, and made two of my favorite John Wayne Westerns, which are the war wagon and train robbers wrote and directed them and brought some similar stuff. Obviously a male camaraderie runs throughout all Westerns, but there's a similar way that men interact in those Mm -hmm. films than to these. So it was definitely, you could see that kind of came from Kennedy also then accentuated by Bedecker. Um, but you know, speaking of Charles Lang, it moves us to the next one, Buchanan Rides Alone, um, which might not have an author at all. Which, as you explained, explained, so more improv almost. All right. So there's, as we kind of go through these, and we should bring it back to the idea of like how these were jobs for all of these people. And like, um, and uh, <clears throat> how they didn't take these movies necessarily they didn't see them as high art let's say even as they were making them so because as we talk about and even kind of lay all of this praise on the tall t there's some questions as to how much burt kennedy even uh let's say contributed to that screenplay because there's an anecdote or legend quote unquote that they tell in the book is that they came to Kennedy already had a finished script for the tall T and he had, I can't remember the producer who brought it to him, but he had more or less a feud that, that Kennedy thought that he had did him wrong in the past and came to him and he had already gotten paid for his work and gotten paid like significantly more. And then offered as like a low ball figure for Kennedy to rewrite the tall T a thousand bucks to do it. And Kennedy came back to him and was like, okay, cool. Here's my counter offer. I'll do it for a thousand bucks a page. And he, as he put it, only got paid $5,000 so that we assume he might've only written five pages of the tall T. So there might not be as much authorship to that as we assign it to him. That too. And this. Um, and, and then Charles Lang obviously writes all of decision at sundown. They say Kennedy may have come in and done some dialogue punch up for that one. It feels on like, set. it feels like he did a little bit, but with, uh, Buchanan rides alone. Apparently there's no author to it because they had the script. Um, and again, the, the author, uh, Robert Knott, it calls into question some of Boddicker's, let's say, uh, myth-making, is because Boddicker has always considered Buchanan Rides Alone as kind of like a minor of his own work, doesn't really like it, and chalked it up to like, oh, it was an old Randolph Scott story that was just kind of around and uh, gathering dust. And even Robert Nod is like, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because like uh, Buchanan Rides Alone was made in like 1957, I want to say. I believe it's and then, 58. 
58. Well, the book that it's based on, it was only written in 1955. So he's like, so by the time it's optioned and turned into a screenplay, let's go a year there. He goes, at the worst, it's only been there for two years. He's like, that's not a very long time for any script to be sitting around collecting dust. It just sounds like he's more or less like skirting blame or what have you. So the legend, there's a few different versions of this because they quote everybody from like LQ Jones to uh, the cinematographer and location scout that was on Lucian Ballard, Lucian Ballard. Exactly. (laughs) And because apparently uh, he Boddicker was on like vacation in Mexico with like uh, with it's Karen Steele, correct. Mm -hmm. Um, Was coming back prepping and, and location scouting with Lucian Ballard and was like Ballard finally read the script while they were location scouting and came to him the next morning and was like, have you read this? And Boddicker's like, not really. And he's like, yeah, it's a piece of shit. And so he called in a favor from Burt Kennedy and like Kennedy comes in, does like a little bit of punch up, but like everybody involved more or less says that Boddicker wrote it himself on set day to day, like LQ Jones is, is quoted as saying like he was writing the scenes on like lunch breaks and when they would rap for the day at night while he was like drinking or whatever. And like would write them all the way up to the last day of production because there's also a conflict as to how long they shot this movie for. Some people say it was only 12 days. The studio listed it as like 18 or whatever. So like, Boddicker was basically pounding out pages in between breaks and they might've improved all the dialogue. Like it's, it's real weird, but honestly, like I know you really like Buchanan rides alone. This was maybe my least favorite because it is a lot of fun. And like Scott is doing something kind of different with his character mm-hmm. because he enters the film as this really weird, Sm- happy go smiling, smiling, like he he's got some one liners and quips. He he uh there's that great scene where he um he takes the bottle of whiskey earlier and like because this is uh very much almost like not a Yojimbo story, but kind of like a yeah. guy rolls into town, it's all controlled by this one family. They all keep telling him, don't piss this guy off. And he goes, Well, how many of them are there? And it's like he gets himself into hot water with them and like but there's a scene early on where he buys this whole bottle of whiskey, gets into more or less like a pithy fight with this drunken uh, member of the family. The guy takes the bottle and he uses that as an excuse to basically take him out. And it's like, it, it's a real weird movie, but you feel the looseness to it while it's even happening on screen. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I... I did not know the history until you told me about the kind of uh, production history and the kind of improv and the, and the this writing. is what you get for assigning me this much homework. Oh, I, I, mean, I'm I actually down. do the homework. I fucking love it. <laughs> eat, breathe. I mean, I eat and breathe this shit all day. Um, and he, what I like about Buchanan rides alone, you mentioned something earlier about like, a lot of these films don't have like heavy plots. This is probably yeah. the most plotty of the films. And where, that's the thing I don't like about it is because it's just, it's double cross after double cross after double cross. And on one hand, that's a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong. Like this is still a fun movie, but in comparison to the other movies, I was really having fun with them in terms of just hanging out with these characters, watching them kind of grow and interact with each other. Right. Well, this one is much more, I don't want to say conventionally plotted, but it's done like it's almost 
quote unquote written like a pulp Western novel to where like every seven pages, it's almost like the publisher was like, and you need a twist or you need a kill or you need something like just so that we, we can sell these for like a dollar and a quarter a pop. Yeah. And I would agree. Like I, what I like about the film, like you said, it's a very different, it's probably the most unique role out of, I'd say the darkest that he is in the films is the end of Decision at Sundown. And the lightest, right. the lightest and pluckiest he is is in Buchanan Rides Alone. Especially, you said, at the beginning, he shows up. He's got $2,000 in his belt. He's on his, he's on his way out to, back to West Texas to buy his stake of land. He's finally got his money together. And he basically kind of gets railroaded in this town, caught up in a murder. Um, and there's... There... There's, they say they're responsible for his wife's. Is this another dead wife? N- none one? of that. None of that. There's none of that. So he. Oh could, no, the Mexican guy. They. He, yeah. He kills. He kills one of the agrees when the town. The town like. The town family um, kills him. Patriarchs. The, we'll the, say. Yeah, and he kills this young man, and then Buchanan is implicated, and basically, as you said, it's a lot of double crosses where the three of the the bad guys are these things I like about the film are the Agri brothers. You have um, the sheriff, the mayor slash running for Senator. Who's the big, big man on campus and the, the doofus hotel clerk who runs the hotel, who reminds me a lot of Bill Sanderson from Deadwood. Yes. Like I was thinking about Bill Sanderson and his relationship to Al Swearingen the whole time while he was on there. He's not as, uh, conniving or lecherous as Sanderson's character is. He's really just a big fucking dope the entire time. Almost seems like he has a disability, let's say. Yeah. Um, he's, well, he's considered he's in, touch. In, in, in the, the parlance of the West, he's the slow one, Yeah, you know? And I, I like, there's a lot of double crosses. He's special. He, and they just, you know, one after the other, uh, double cross one another. And, Again, there are elements of this. While it is a different kind of narrative than the other more like revenge-based uh, Bedeker, Scott, and Kennedy westerns, there is one thing. I, again, I really like about these films that's pretty constant is him through his goodness turning a young person's like life around and teaching them like what they want to be. Like he he's a symbol of like what it is to be a man in the West. And this really zeroes in on that. It and it kind of goes in line with Bedeker's old school masculinity and like cause even in that Taylor Hackford documentary, there there's like a real feeling of like, sit down, son, and let me tell you a story and you're gonna take something away from this for the rest of your life. You know? Yeah, it's it, it's it's simple stuff. Like there's a there's a quote in in Ride Lonesome where um he says, you know, there are some things a man just can't write around. Like these right. simple package truths, which I, I don't always subscribe to in real life, but in movies I fucking love. I, I love that kind of like simple morality. Well, and um, it's like it, it kind of predates that line in particular, sort of predates the uh, running mantra of the Sam Peckinpah movie that he's in. Uh, a man just wants to enter his house justified. Yeah. Like same type of very basic. Uh, platitudes. Yep. And it's, it's a great fucking line too. Um, and there's, there's the, there's the LQ Jones character in this who, um, doesn't even really need to be turned around because in other films, you, it takes a while for him to kind of get to these younger and like teach them. LQ Jones is like, Oh, you're from West Texas. Me too. He's like, and he he's so fucking great too. And it's so one of the awesome. weird times because if you see LQ, like, 
our generation probably mostly knows LQ Jones as the shit kicker from Casino who looks like he was born in the desert at like 65. Like here, LQ Jones is actually like young Handsome. and kind of virile. I also just saw a movie. We were talking off mic. Uh, I watched a movie that he uh, co-starred in and produced um, because he was big into the weirdo sci-fi and horror scene in the 70s. Uh, but he produced a, a movie called... Uh, Brotherhood of Satan, where he shows up as the town sheriff in this small Dust Bowl town that's being overtaken by a uh, cult of devil worshippers. But he, in that, is very much like you look at him and you're like, oh shit, you were actually like real good looking. He's a lot sweatier in that movie. Um, again, it's the 70s. But like, yeah, it, it's crazy to see LQ Jones show up in this because like he even... I remember Jones narrating to bring it back to Peckinpah and ride the high country. There was this uh, documentary about Peckinpah that I learned a lot and, and made me dive down a rabbit hole. I wish I could remember the name of it, but LQ Jones actually narrated it the entire time. And it's really, really good. I'll have to find the name as we kind of ramble on here. <laughs> um, well, I'm having a great time. Uh, yeah. So, and let's let's put a pin in the the peck and paw things. I kind of want to end with uh, a peck and paw discussion. Yeah, that's we have to come back to that. But movie. I think that's like that'll be our last thing we talk about. Sure. Um, before questions, because yeah, I think we're we're moving that direction, which is cool. Um, let's move on to the next film, Ride Lonesome, which is the the film. The, that's the, the the film of the episode. Yeah, there it is took a film. Us an hour and fifteen minutes to get into the the actual movie <laughs> that this episode is supposed to be based around. Um, but honestly, this is fine because it's like, that's the, the whole point of this is to explore the, these directors, entire filmographies. Now, before we do that, before we put a pin in it, I do want to tell one story because it's amazing. I texted it to you today oh, yeah. from the book is that a lot of people, uh, Western historians credit, um, Buchanan Rides Alone as being one of the movies that really inspired the Sergio Leone and Spaghetti Westerns um, because there is very much like a, you 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 can see a, a fistful of dollars kind of in there and the Yojimbo parallels and everything. But apparently in the 80s, um, not too long before Bedeker's actual death, he was at a film festival and heard that Sergio Leone was there and apparently... Always wanted to meet Leone because he became a big fan of, of the Spaghetti Westerns as well. And, like, they just happened to pass each other on a staircase. Now, how much of this is apocryphal and not... I mean, all these people are fucking dead, so we can't actually verify it. But, like, apparently, Leone passed, recognized him, and went, Buddy! Baby! I stole everything from you! <laughs> and you're like... What? Seri like, I read this little... I literally read this paragraph in the book and screenshot it and just sent it to you and was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like, A, they make Sergio Leone sound like Mario. Just, like, on the stairs. Like, hey! Because he literally... Like, the direct quote is, buddy! And you're like, oh, my God. But, like, that's pretty amazing. I If true. Yeah, there's... There are a lot of stories about Bedeker's run-in with his friends and things, other things. Like, did you hear the one about him running into John Wayne no. at, at a bullfight? So, no, but I'm sure it's great. Okay, I was going to, while we're talking about it, this shit, this, I was like crying laughing when I read this. So I guess, because Wayne and him were friends, and Wayne would call him not Bud, but Bood. <laughs> Because, <laughs> and, and I think it was because everyone called uh, John Wayne the dude. Like, even 
to his yeah. face. Like, hey, dude. Like, that was what they called him. And Duke. Uh, sorry, the Duke. I apologize. Yeah. The dude. I was like, <laughs> yeah. Is he um, Jeff Bridges now? Yeah. <laughs> That'd be awesome. So, Bedeker was, um, he was supposed to, after being already like being a famous director, not famous, but a working director, sure, um, was going to do. They already had a lot of intersection with John Wayne. Yeah, and they were they had worked together. They've been friends. I mean, obviously since um, since uh, so then from now. Well, and the way that book makes it sound is that scene was very small. Like it was very incestuous. Everybody worked with everybody. Like that's why you saw all the same actors and writers and directors doing like these pictures time and again. He's. Um, He's out of he's down in Mexico and he's doing a um, basically after he's already a director he's gonna go do another bullfight like for like charity or something like that like and it's like sure like you do and so he's like a, he's he's going into the ring with like Aruza who's his friend another um, uh, famous bullfighter and they're getting ready to walk in and um, <laughs> I guess this is what uh, quote what Bedeker says he's like. Uh, there's a, a fucking limousine pulls up. That's what I, I added that. And Wayne gets out. I was like, Wayne's pilot is holding him up. He's got one of these big quart bottles of tequila here in one hand. He's got a big Coca-Cola here in the other. And he's drunk. And I say, hey, Duke, what are you doing here? He says, well, Jesus Christ, boot, if you're going to get yourself killed, I sure as hell killed. I sure as hell want to see it. Oh, my God. <laughs> And it's just like, like I like the notion that he was probably just shooting that bottle of tequila and then chugging the the coke right yep. after mm-hmm. in the chaser. No, I just love it. I just, what an animal! That image in my mind is just so wonderful. It brings this immediate smile to my face. Um, but now let's get into Ride Lonesome, the movie of the episode. Uh, yep. How did you pick? Like watching these and working my way through them, I did have the question: like, why this one? Why why did you pick this as almost like the apex of the the Boddicker uh au revoir, if you will? Yeah, it's interesting. Again, like most people would say the tall T. I'm not trying to be a contrarian. I love tall T, but no, I No, but a lot of people love this one too. This I think yeah, I'm not like going against the grain. This is a very beloved film by him. This is the film This is where uh Burt Kennedy returns. Charles Lang is kicked to the curb. This is one of the best Burt Kennedy scripts. It is the, I think the best of that, the, the journey narrative of a, of a group of people. Um, I think it has the most interesting, um, well, I love the Richard Boone character in tall T. I like the Parnell Roberts character so much in, um, in ride lonesome. And a quick, you know, plot for everyone. Again, this is the ultimate beginning to a Bedecker film of, He's riding through the canyons of, of Lone Pine. 40, Gorgeous movie. Beautiful. 45 seconds in the movie, like we have our inciting incident. <laughs> like he runs into, he's already on his mission. He runs into Billy Jack. Uh, no, sorry, not Billy Jack. Um, but no, it's Billy Jack. Right? Is it? Yeah, because he's the outlaw that, because Randolph Scott in this one is a, a bounty hunter and he is after this dude and they basically. He takes him into custody, but he's more or less surrounded by gunmen. Yeah, sorry, Billy John. Billy um, John, that's yeah. it. But he he did, he takes Billy John, and then on his travel to get Billy John to Santa Cruz, um, he 
which is where he's going to be hanged. He's going to get his money. He runs into Parnell Roberts and a young James Colburn first role. Um, very skinny. Very skinny. And this is the role, I guess. Doesn't she, quite have the, the the trademark Coburn voice yet, too. Like, it's there, but it's not like not the, that booming. Yeah. It's a little higher, you know. And and this is actually because he say would, he's a little gentle at this point. Yeah. Um, he's great. So that, big, that big slack jawed grin. I love it. Um, oh yeah. But he, he, that's actually how Colburn got the role in, um, uh, Magnificent Seven because John right. Sturges was friends with, uh, with Bedeker and he's like, you gotta see this guy. And Coburn's great in, seven, in <laughs> Magnificent Seven. Um, and what basically he, again, goes to a stagecoach station to stop. Um, the, the person running the place is gone and there are there's Parnell Roberts and um, James Colburn, who our main character Brigade Randolph Scott has a relationship with. Like he knew them from the past. He knows they're criminals because of course he does. Yeah, because he knows everybody, even though they're in the fucking <laughs> West, where it's enormous. Uh, but the whole thing of like he knows that Boone has been a criminal. Um, and bounty hunting is not a criminal thing. And, and again, this is As this, bounty law taught us. Yes. This is the ultimate, again, this is that poker thing that Andrew Sears is talking about in this movie, because yeah, 100%. especially you're like, there's a lot more, it's more nuanced. It's less of the double crosses of Buchanan rides alone and more of these like little things of like, Oh, is he going to kill him? Like, what do they want from each other? And what's cool about this is this is a, this is late in the film when you find out exactly what 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 brigade is trying to do and that is real late he real late he is using he's hoping to get caught by uh billy john's brother lee van cleef and his crew because lee van frank right frank killed his wife again a dead wife and hanged her at the fucking hanging from a hanging tree from the hanging tree this has one of the best final images ever I'm going to go on record right now for the world. It's my favorite final shot in, in cinema history. It's like, amazing. Period. I, I had a friend, uh, Ben, who's a Western fan, and he had never seen this, and I recommend it. I said, hey, you should watch Bedeker. And he just texted me, what do you think? He goes, that final image, woof. <laughs> I was like, yeah. like It's brutal, man. But I mean, like... The final image, sorry, sorry before, just the, for our listeners, um, is after he's gotten his revenge um, at the same hanging tree, the last shot is he burns the fucking hanging tree. It's, yeah. It's burning. It's like, it's like, you know, basically a bearing of the hatchet or what have you, like he's ready to move on, but it's still like really and the music. So like dour and dark. Well, and honestly with all of the death that occurs in this film, like you actually wonder the entire time if he's, this has for me, one of the most ambiguous finales because yes, he gets his revenge, but this is also one of those like, I guess earliest examples of the the, the poison pill that is yep. vengeance is that you watch it and you go, this guy might be fucked up for the rest of his life now. Yeah, it's it's. I was reading a thing about this and it, it connected it to um, Ethan and the Searchers, John Wayne, right? Where that's not revenge, but it's the same idea of these are men who finished their mission, but civilization won't have them because she asks in Ride Lonesome, are you going to come to Santa Cruz? And he's like, nope. Yeah, he he can't go back. They're to already the world. antiquated in the world that they kind of exist in. But this is also one of the great uh, examples because uh, these movies are often held, held up as like the transitional pictures between um, Ford and Peckham. The old, yeah, exactly. The, the old school studio style and then new Hollywood 
uh, they're kind of anti-Western or the revisionist Western, quote unquote, where they, they started sucking the myth out of it and made it about like, what did the violence in the old West actually look like? You had stuff like this, or like we bring up wild bunch, um, but ride the high country is a big one because that's a big bridge film that it's features like, it's like the bridge, the bridge <laughs> film of all time. Um, but also stuff like, uh, I don't know. Have you ever seen Peter Fonda's the hired hand? Oh, I never have. Would be another one. Great. Like the greatest acid Western of all time with cool. him and Warren Oates. Um, Oh yeah, if you've never seen that, we gotta watch that. Well, together. Oates is my dude, so I'm, I'm well. In. And that's not to get off on a tangent or anything, but that's one of the the counterculture movies that like following the success of Easy Rider, uh, Fonda parlayed that into a, a, a deal with Universal, and that yielded both the, tr- the trip, right? Uh, was that no, after trip before? is still Corman? That's Corman. Okay, sorry. Um, but this yielded Two Lane Blacktop for Monty Hellman. Woo! And then also the hired hand, which is we you have to watch this with me. Shot by Vilmus Zygmunt, um, edited within an inch of its life to where scenes literally bleed into one another. Like it feels like you're on drugs the entire time, while also presenting uh, this very classic storyline about. Uh, Peter Fonda, Peter Fonda, and Warren Oates are guys who basically went out on the range together and return home after I believe it's like twelve years. I haven't watched it in a little bit, but um, and then his uh, Peter Fonda just finally looks at Warren Oates one day and goes, "You know, I was married. I had kids. I want to go home." And he just goes home. But at this point, his wife is counted him more or less as like dead. And she's a widow. She's raised these kids by herself on like this isolated ranch. And he goes back and to bring the title into it, to work his way back into her heart, he becomes her hired hand on her little ranch. And it's chef's kiss oh like, man fucking awesome well warren oates is like the sad buddy the entire time who really pines for this wife and sees like basically how he like how peter fonda's character like fucked up the whole time and more or less judges him for it because he falls in love with her but won't do anything about it because that's his buddy's wife and that's his <sighs> best friend's girl dude 92 minutes just we gotta watch it together since you've never seen it oh, i'm yeah. I'm sold. I mean, you don't have to sell me on that shit. But the, to bring it back to uh, Ride Lonesome, like this is very much like without Ride Lonesome, you don't get these movies. Right? Yeah, there's something about all of Bedeker's. Again, I think the reason I pick Ride Lonesome is it's the, it's the most distilled of his films. If I like, I think again, like Tall T might be the one where it's like the most interesting, like masterpiece of the, all of them. But if I'm the one, I'm like, they're like, hey, what's Bedeker's deal? I'll be like, watch Ride Lonesome. Like, that's the one I would want to show. Yeah, because it distills so much of what he was good at. Uh, what he, all the elements are there, like every single element of like plot devices that from Burt Kennedy. I think it's probably one of Burt. The, the dialogue is so good. Like Parnell Roberts, like it's mu- it's much more sexual too. Like his his comedy, it really is. He's just talking about you know that, that line I said at the beginning. You know, like he's got a deep need in her. He's just like really just like well, they talk about, over her the whole time. They talk about in the book where when they started submitting the the scripts to um, can't remember what it was called. It's not because it's not Hayes Code at this point. It's something else. But it was more or less like yeah. the production review. I think it might be the production code board at this point. Is that they would. 
honestly take issue with some of those lines and stuff and be like, you can't have that in there. And they'd be like, okay. And then they would still do it. Yeah. It's there. It's a, it's kind of a perfect film. That's just so full of everything I love about Bedeker again, distilled Bedeker, but also just like a distilled Western, sure. you know, it, there's something about these that are so they're so boiled down. And like you had said, you know, you're almost annoyed by parts of tall T being like, like too pared down, you know, when, when we spoke, but this one, I think I would agree with parts Talty that does that are like that. This one is that one that's that perfect mix of it's still mythic and still amazing. Like again, that final shot, and it's just for me the perfect Bedecker film. Um, it's tremendous. Do you want to talk about Ride the High Country for like a quick minute before we get into questions? Let's finish with Comanche Station real quick. Yeah, um, because that's the final film of the series. Uh, sure, but but we can do that pretty quickly. Um, Comanche Station is basically a remake of Ride of Ride Lonesome. Right, um, and the, that's kind of what. I didn't want to say leave that one out, but like, I'm not going to lie. Like I struggled through Comanche station because I was like, didn't I, I just watched this movie. It's, it's really similar. I also love Comanche station. It's still super fun. It's well, and I'm sorry. I said Chet Atkins before Claude Aikens. I'm a fucking asshole. I love, and I love, I Claude wondered Aikens. where you were bringing that from. I was like, Chet Hayes, like what's happening here? <laughs> Claude Aikens, who is uh, one of my favorite, uh, Twilight Zone episodes, the monsters are due on Maple street. Um, he's right. the, and then also he's the bad, one of the bad guys in Rio Bravo, another one of my absolute favorite Westerns and movies, um, basically the same idea. Um, Scott Adkins wrote this one, right? This was, oh my, dude, if Scott Adkins were in a Bedecker film, I would like <laughs> die. Like the, if, if I had one like business that was not limited by science, I would have a time machine that would put together directors from the past and actors of today. And Scott I, Adkins in a Tony Scott movie. Oh, that'd be fucking great. Anyway, um, and we can't do this. Go. Okay. Uh, that's a whole other, that's a whole other podcast. This is its own episode where um, we just get really high and go, but, what if, but this again has a lot of the same elements, um, of a lot of like almost that, that, uh, poker game of going on of there. He's taking a woman, um, his, it, it's interesting. It's a very similar, reveal to ride lonesome where you find out that oh his wife was killed by frank and his true mission is he's trying to get frank to show up right more what, dead wives than nolan right and what you get with comanche station is he has a missing wife and he goes the beginning to get this woman um nancy lowe's character's name played by nancy gates um out of a native american camp he buys her back um, because her husband is uh, has sent men out, uh, bounty, basically bounty hunters, to get her alive. Um, With all the cowboys and, and, and Indians type stuff in this one, like this is t- to me the one that felt the most Fordian in a weird way. There's a lot, and there's a lot. There's a couple action scenes that are very Ford too. Yeah. With some like um, firing at the the following Native Americans, and but one of the cool things you get that you get that subplot of. Um, of turning a, a young man's life around and it's, it's Doby right. basically tells him, he's like, you can be a different person and, and Doby tries to change and is, is killed for it. Um, but I think what really, the reason I didn't want to skip this film is the end. I think has, it's a really powerful ending, um, where the whole film, they're emasculating a man who's not there because her husband is not there. And so what, what Claude Aikens is doing very similar to Lee Marvin to the face of the people in some men from now is, Oh, you know, if you were my woman, 
I would come get you myself. I'd ride across all the land. And he's being really laying it on thick. And so the whole thing is like, man, where is this woman's husband? And just imagine Lee Marvin doing Bram Stoker's Dracula. I would travel across oceans of time. <laughs> I, that'd be fucking awesome. Um, and at the end, he finally gets her back to her husband and the husband's blind. And yeah. it's, that could be seen as cheap. I think it's really handled well because I liked it a lot. I love it. No. Cause she, she hugs him and it's such a wonderful scene that, and the kid comes out. You didn't even talk about the kid earlier, but she doesn't even mention the kid. But he comes out and hugs her and Randall Scott's kind of watching and, and he says, I didn't know. And she said, well, if you knew, um, if you knew my man, you knew there's a reason he would have, wouldn't have able to come after me. And then he looks at her, he goes, I figured as much. And it's an idea of like any man who's good enough to love you had to have a reason not to come out here. I think it's a great like ending. And I think it's just kind of a cool, like he had twist. to have been literally like physically rendered unable to do it because every, any man who loved you would come across time. Yeah. And I just think that's fucking romantic as hell. Um, but let's talk ride the high country. So, Ride the High Country, I believe, 62, unless I'm incorrect. That sounds right. So, Ride the High Country. This it, is Peck and Paul, like, literally hanging on to, for dear life, to a career at the early stages before Wild Bunch goes in and makes a studio western, but makes a Sam Peck and Paul movie. Makes a Sam Peck and Paul movie with a quite similar structure to a Bedecker film. Yeah, very much so. People on a trip with a mission, this time carrying gold, and said, but the Scott character. Normal Scott character is played by Joel McRae. Fucking amazing. Yeah. And then Scott plays the Richard Boone or the Parnell Roberts, who has other ulterior motives, obviously trying to steal that gold. I'm going to help you bring this gold across the, across the land, but I really want it. And it's cool because Scott's playing against type, and he's playing you know a part he's played against so many times on screen. Yeah. It definitely has it's MGM. It has more money. Um, it looks it, tremendous. It looks great. The great the, score. The bum 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 bum. Yeah. I, I get a song. I'll be like in the shower, and that song enters my head. I'm like, is that the ride the high country theme in, well, in the but, shower? But yeah, it was popping in my head. At least you know it, it's weird too. Yeah, no, no, but it's just like <laughs> where, the, where the fuck that come from? But what's cool about about that film is you were saying about we're talking about Bedecker being the bridge between um, Ford or classic or Hawks yeah. and, and Peck and Paw is Peck and Paul really got into, especially in the wild bunch of, like you mentioned earlier, times passing us by. Like we're, we're the outlaws, but like now cars are here, technology, the, the railroad, things are more connected, there are roads. There's no longer a place for outlaws like us. Like that's the wild bunch, right? Right. But they get into that a lot and ride that. He's already playing with that and ride the high country. I love the opening scene where he rides into town. He's all, there's a fucking race that goes by. One person's riding a fucking camel. So there's already a sense of internationalism, like it's you know globalism. Like where'd that come from? And a car almost hits him. And people say like, basically stay out of the way, old man. And you see like kind of Peck and Paul working out some of his shit in that movie as like a precursor. Helps that he wasn't as heinously drunk on this one, so yeah. it comes across like competently. Hundred percent. Yeah, but no, this is. Um, Actually, that documentary I, I mentioned earlier uh, with LQ Jones narrating, that sent me down a rabbit hole because I watched it right before I moved to Austin and I took a job at, at Vulcan Video and we had an entire Sam Peckinpah section. So like, I just watched everything that I could possibly get my hands on for him. And Ride the High Country was the movie that they even point out in the, the, the doc about him is that it was like, this was him 
more or less getting his sea legs and asserting himself and being like, no, I'm going to make my type of movie. Like, he was playing ball with the studio, but also like making his movie, you know? And there's stuff that's subversive about it. Like you said, like having Randolph Scott play more or less the villain, um, putting Joel McRae, who was well over the hill oh, at this point, yeah. uh, in the hero role. And like, he's tremendous so in the film. Um, but it's just, it's a great, great movie, but it is almost like the stopping point of like, or, or the natural uh, result of, especially if you watch all the Batacur movies in a row, you go, oh, Peck and Paul definitely saw all of these and was like, all right, here's my version of it, but this is the, the period at the end of that sentence, and now New Hollywood is coming in. It's, it's a terrific film that, that works as the perfect companion piece to these movies that we're talking about. Yes, for sure. So you want to get into questions? Let's do it. Hell yeah. The idea in Ride Lonesome, uh, this loner, and, and uh, Scott uh, plays it so perfectly. I find that I... Uh, use this particular film as a reference to a lot of younger actors in certain pictures I made, uh, particularly um, The Departed and a number of other pictures where the people find themselves alone in a certain world and universe and everybody's against them, so to speak. Uh, the loner, I mean, in a way, is really essential to the history of the Western. He's out there in the wilderness, he's making his way in his own. And so you have to ask yourself how central it is, really, as Americans, to the history of this country, the idea of the loner. It's because it's a big part of our mythology, our idea of ourselves as Americans, and and obviously it's there in the you know Melville, the greatest Moby Dick, being the first and most famous example to come to mind. It's um, central to the westerns, and and just as central to urban stories like offhand on Dangerous Ground, Nick Ray's film, for for instance, or um, a picture I made, Taxi Driver, that Schrader wrote, and of course uh, most stories of loners are also about their struggle to fit in the, with the community or to, to come to terms with the community, overcome some kind of hurt or loss. And that's one of the elements that's so powerful in Ride Lonesome. Scott is a, a bounty hunter who's getting revenge on the man who hanged his wife. And it's pretty close to The Naked Spur by Anthony Mann with Jimmy Stewart, where Jimmy Stewart is hunting down the man who killed his brother. But of course, in both films, the heroes come to, the understand, to understand, this is the key, they come to understand the toll and the price of vengeance, the toll it takes on them. We're back with questions about 1959's Ride Lonesome. Martin, this is your show. Take it away. All right. So to get started, let's uh, let's do our top three of the Bedecker films that we've seen, starting with you, Jacob. Uh, probably Seven Men From Now. I just liked that one so much right off the bat, and it made me really excited to dig into the rest. Um, I'm not trying to be contrarian, but probably decision at sundown is my number two because I like how weird and idiosyncratic it is. And like, it feels like it has something to say without maybe even knowing it. So I'm always fascinated by that. I also think Randolph Scott's really good at it as a, kind of a heel and ride lonesome. Like, yeah, that would be number three for me for all the reasons that you kind of said, it's like, if you were to show somebody a Bedecker film, 
you would show them that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, that's, that's definitely good. And I would say Ride Lonesome for number one for me, obviously. Um, it was my pick for today because it is like the most distilled of the Bedecker Westerns. It has everything that makes his films great. The, I think the best that Burt Kennedy did, one of the Randolph Scott's better performances. Also, we didn't mention earlier just like just from a screenplay structure and just like the way it flows, everything is just like, I want to make something like that. You know, like yeah. I, I watch that movie. I, re, I, I look at the, just the script and like shit, like what happened? Well, I can't, I want to say that movie like today. Um, and like these dudes just bang that shit out. That's, that's why I love it so much. It seems so kind of effortless. They're like, cause they were doing two of these a year, Yeah, you know? And they're, again, they're shooting it in like the equivalent of two weeks, probably, you know, months, like a month of pre-production or whatever. And you know, if that, um, but Number two would be, honestly, Buchanan Rides Alone. Um, I I really like that movie. Um, I, I love that it's very different from the other ones, kind of like you were saying for you with Decision at Sundown. Um, I, I like just the plot heaviness of it. It, it. I like how, it, you know, for the reasons I love Ride Lonesome, I, I, I like it for the opposite reasons that it, it breaks the mold um, of kind of what they built with the renowned cycle. Um, and then third, I'm probably going to go tall T I and mean, that's the one that kind of broached my love for, for Bedecker. First one I saw, um, I think it is a masterpiece. I mean, seven men has the now, best dialogue it, out of all of them and, and Richard Boone. I mean, like, yeah, it's, he's and Henry Silva. I mean, yeah, you have one of the best Western villains I think ever. And then one of the best henchmen, like just Henry Silva, just giving it his all. It's worth noting that all of these are good. And I, I kind of <laughs> wish that I watched them over a month and not like mm. a 10 week to two or, or 10 day to two week period, because I do think that some of them may have suffered because of watching them so close together. And they have so many similarities and like, you can tell again that these are fired off. Like these guys are just shooting from the hip. Their job, their jobs for them. They're paying their rent. Like they're not crafting these for years at a time, and they're not ideas that have sat with them forever. It's just like the Larry Cohen thing of like you know when he would just make up pitches like literally in the waiting room while waiting to actually talk to the executives. Like that's what these guys were trained to do. They were real jobbers. They were real industry workers, and like. I think that also makes it if you quote unquote binge these, I guess, on Criterion Channel, which after this episode, get on it because I, I just got an email that they leave the service at the end of the month, which kind of sucks. But anyway, um, I, I wish I had a little more time to digest each one. I think I would have appreciated it more. But in the end, yeah. Probably They're more, all good. Probably more feedback between sure. them as you're as you're watching. And so I would have closely. loved to have sought out a little more writing interviews with Bedeker, stuff like that, just because I have really enjoyed just doing the homework. Like it's just one of those things to where I felt like it's kind of the point of this podcast is for us to teach each other about the things that we really love. And like I feel like I really learned something here because like these were all I knew of Bedeker and I realized halfway through that I thought I had seen some of them and they must have just been like clips and documentaries and film classes and stuff. Cause each one I was like, I've seen parts of this, but not all of it. I don't think, 
Well, I'm happy. I'm happy. Yeah, no, it's great. It's, it's <laughs> been it's been a real ball. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you enjoyed it. He, he's uh, sounds cheesy, but very special to me. Like his films, you know, they're they're yeah. really, like, they're close to my heart. Um, well, well, like you said yeah. before, there's not a ton of scholarship on them out there. Yeah, it feels like something you can kind of in that cool way of like before the band is popular, like you can kind of own it. You know, it's it's kind of like how I love the Boogans as a movie. It's like not a very like what the fuck the I, bo- really the, that's the comparison you're going with. Well, just of liking movies that just I have, saw the Boogans in a bar <laughs> in Cincinnati, and I was like, that's the next that's, Demon Turtle band that I'm gonna follow. That's the thing. Um, <laughs> but uh, well, moving on, um, <laughs> double feature. Um, you go first. Okay. Um, I thought a lot about this. This took me a while because there's a lot of ways you can go with this double feature. I was looking for like a noir, like a pared down noir. So I feel like they play out in that way. He's only made officially one noir, which is the killer is loose. Um, and even though I've, from what I've heard, the Legs Diamond film is not noir. It's more of like a gangster pick, you know, from the 20s. Yeah, it's more like falling in line with like Cagney stuff and yeah. whatever. He said Scarface was like his big thing. Okay, like Paul like, Mooney. Yeah, yeah, more like a Hawks kind of thing. Um, my pick, though, is Winchester 73, the oh. Anthony Mann film. And partly because that's just one of my other favorite Westerns. That's like top five. Um, but also because the more I watch Bedeker, the, just the more sim- – and I'm not the first to say this – like so many similarities between stylistically character and narrative with Anthony Mann films, especially the way that he used um, Jimmy Stewart and Jimmy Stewart played a very similar kind of stoic character. Um, And for me, Winchester 73 is, is my favorite Anthony Mann film hands down. Also a man on a revenge mission. It starts, he's already on the mission. Now the narrative is much crazier. And for those of you who haven't seen it, Watch it yesterday. I mean, it is the idea because the name is the Winchester 73 is that um, Jimmy Stewart comes to uh, this small town where Wyatt Earp himself is running a, uh, a shooting contest. And whoever wins the shooting contest wins the brand new Winchester 73 repeater rifle. And it's the, the gun that won the West. But it's this beautiful, like one of a kind with a gold inlay. It's this whole thing. And... Uh, there's a shoot off between Jimmy Stewart and guess you guessed it, a guy he has a past with. Um, and he wins, uh, but the guy and his friends jump him and take the rifle. And so it's Jimmy Stewart trying to find this rifle, but the movie is this like episodic, almost anthology where it goes from the gun is passed from group to group. And you just get the sense of it. Like you're going through this, like kind of panoramic view of the West with, following this gun as it's handed between owners and it finally comes back to Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart's kind of interspersed trying to look for it. But again, there's just a really a pared down nature. It's more definitely more mythic than the Bedeker films. I think especially 73 with the idea of like the gun and the West and more, definitely more of a, cause in, even at that point it was about owning a piece of history. Right, exactly. And, and there's definitely a sense of, um, it's a more playful narrative too. Like the idea there's no other Western or like that where you follow a gun. Um, but I think just, again, it's specifically the Jimmy Stewart kind of lead character, the stoic, the women look at him. He's very courtly toward them. Very similar to how he is to, um, I think it's, uh, not Shirley MacLaine, but, uh, I'm an asshole. Uh, from, from Lolita, the mom, Shelly, Shelly, Shelly winners. Yeah. 
um, in that film. So how about you? What's your double feature? So I'm going to go a little outside of the box on this one since our episode has kind of traversed more of a director's filmography than just one film. Um, I'm going to pick one out of the lineup that we just covered and I'm going to pick the tall T and I'm going to pair it with 52 pickup as Elmore Leonard adaptations made by dudes who had a link to in Bedeker's case was very much a part of the old school studio system. And 52 pickup is made by John Frankenheimer, who was a guy who made even like TV playhouse type stuff. Yep. Um, you know, fifties movies and had even a band movie with the, the Manchurian candidate, but 52 pickup is like one of the ultimate dirt bag Elmore Leonard adaptations like real scumball bullshit produced by Canon Films, uh, stars Roy Scheider as a rich guy and Margaret, Anne Margaret who's so fucking hot. Also, Anne Margaret's so hot in this movie <laughs> that you can't like it, it. It actually becomes like a point of contention when you're watching it narratively because the whole thing hinges around like Roy Scheider cheats on her. And is blackmailed by this this trio of scumbags with John Glover in like the most oh, lecherous yes. John Glover mode, and Clarence Williams the third as like one of his henchmen. Clarence Williams the third would more or less be like the Henry Silva cool. character in this, but like the 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 point where you like you, you kind of have to suspend your disbelief is you look at Anne Margaret and you're like, you cheated on her, like okay, like I get it, you know. He, because I believe he cheats on her with a much younger woman, if if memory serves. That might be Kelly Preston, I think. Mm. Who's it's in? Been a minute. Who's in peak like hot Kelly Preston mode? I mean, she was always in hot Kelly Preston mode, but I think she still is. Right? Um, yeah. I mean, but this is a real study in contrasts too, in terms of like watching Bedeker take an Elmore Leonard uh, story, pare it down, and make a Bud Bedeker movie out of this. Frankenheimer very much is taking an Elmer Leonard movie and making it for like dirtbag canon enthusiasts while never once losing his uh, ostentatious flair, let's say. Because even when he was making movies with like Burt Lancaster on like the young, uh, young savages. Uh, the Train was him too. The Train. Yeah. Oh man, Good The Train shit. is one of the great. I believe The Train, if we want to talk about lineage to between... Uh, you know, 50s and 60s movies and like modern cinema, kind of like with how Bedeker led into new Hollywood and how, you know, cinematic violence and everything kind of evolved. The train, if you want the patient zero for what the modern action picture looks like, you watch the train because the train is still just as thrilling as anything that's come out in the last 20 to 25 years. And like technique wise, you watch it and you're like, Oh my God, Frankenheimer was just so fucking ahead of the curb. But he was a dude who could both turn in work and be a jobber, or he could totally give you the most subversive weirdo seconds. Yeah. Seconds would, would to bring up rock Hudson again. He, he, Outside of Douglas Sirk is one of the few directors who actually really tapped into something uh, special performance-wise with, with Rock Hudson. Um, yeah, again, all the Lancaster movies that he made, but then he also made like you know the Island of Doctor Moreau, 
after Richard Stanley was fired and that movie became just a, such a colossal clusterfuck. Reindeer Games with Ben Affleck, a movie I, I, I enjoy, but I also look at and go, eh, not great. But Ronin's the shit. Ronan, well, and that mammoth script for Ronan Woo! is like one of the great ones. <laughs> but anyway, like Frankenheimer, could, he just could do it. You know, and when he turned it on, he really did. And I, I feel like he really does with 52 Pickup, even though he's making, he, he's almost like serving two masters here and he serves them perfectly. He totally turns in a film that if you played this at the Lyric on 42nd Street, it would satisfy the dirtbags out there as sex as violence as drugs as pornographers it's just just gnarly garbage but at the same time it's really edgy and thrilling and like from a cinematic standpoint you can tell like he's still very much engaged with the material Roy Scheider's kind of playing against type to a certain degree not really, I guess, because since he won the Academy Award for playing Bob Fosse, he's just as much, if not more, of a dirtbag. But, like, you know, he's he's in full, like, kind of sleazy mode. And, like, again, all the villains and stuff are so memorable. And, like, when this movie pops off with the violence, it delivers. Just, it's the Frankenheimer way, man. So, yeah, Tall T and 52 Pickup. Those hell, are my picks. Hell yeah. So let's do uh remake, yay or nay, and if so, how? Sure. I mean, I think this question answers itself just because we have the Schrader of it all uh, entering the arena, and I can't wait for that movie. It's going to be one of two things. It's going to be another masterpiece, since Schrader's been such a, on, you know, a late period run. The card counter, I mean, is Woo! just, it's, I actually prefer it to First Reformed. I get that many people might like First I think Reformed I, I think more, I like it more. But... Like, he's just killing it right now. So I want to see his deconstructed Western. Sure. So, yeah. Fire away, Paul. Yeah. I mean, for me, um, I agree. To answer two, I want to see films like this today. You know, and, and something even I've just been working on the script and I'm just like keeping Bedeker as my North Star. You know, of like there's something missing where, you know, you, you look at a film, again, like Halloween Kills, which is a goddamn mess of trying to do a lot and accomplishing a little. And and even for a Blumhouse film, probably given too much too much money at points uh, sure. to work with. And you see what a person can do. So I would like to see this kind of film, uh, I think a, a remake of any of them, or like a, a similar to what he's going to do for, hopefully for Nine Men from now, um, with that from then from now, more by reconstruction. But I think that any any kind of like pared down Western today, like I'm always down for that. You know? Um, yeah. So I, I just can't say no. This, I had the weird thought the other day and maybe after a little too much weed and while I was watching either Tall T or one of them. Anyway, I was just sitting there going like with the idea that like so many of these barely run feature length, like Ride Lonesome is 72 minutes. Yeah. And we I kind of said up front that like you can watch this whole cycle of films in the same time that it would take to binge a prestige Midnight Mass. Netflix series. <laughs> yeah, Midnight Mass. Um This might actually work on streaming. Again, I don't know. If you binge it, but if you did something like with like an Apple TV 
or Hulu or Peacock or any of them that do like a week to week rollout with it. Like I could totally see you doing like a Bedeker style series Mm. where each one not even necessarily as one long narrative, but they become like you almost you almost create the Randolph Scott character, right? Like that's your protagonist. And each week is almost like a mix of old school, um, like X-Files episodes where like some would be episodic. It's just, what's his adventure this week? What's he doing that he's rolling in? While others would be about his overarching arc about like more than likely his dead wife, but like that he's hunting down these dudes or whatever. And those are the, the, the episodes like in between that he's doing like that could be kind of fun if you wanted to fuck around with the Western and do that as like a series kind of in the same way. Like Scott Frank did one. Oh. What was the series on Netflix? That was a lot of fun. That was the all the town that was run by women. Oh, um, oh, um, uh, godless godless. Yeah. I like that quite a bit. Uh, but do something kind of like that. Like, and I feel like that would be, like streaming is the arena where you get something like this made. You obviously aren't releasing these in theaters these days, especially post pandemic. But like, I think you could, you could get away with something kind of interesting if you applied this aesthetic and this type of storytelling, but made it compatible for how audiences digest content today. Yeah. I mean, I agree. And I think that you think about, like I'm excited about the um, anthology series, horror series that Del Toro is doing with different directors. Like right. One, these hour long kind of mini movies or it's the black mirror mentality too. Right. Of yeah. these like episodes, but they're cinematic. It's almost like his masters of horror. It sounds like it, very much. And I would do masters of Western and I, but it would be like, Ooh. but it wouldn't have to be Bedeker. But what I would do is I would say every filmmaker has a classic director that they would they would do. Sorry, right, you're doing an Anthony Mann episode. You're doing Bedeker. You're doing Fork. You're doing Hawks. And like everyone, man, how intimidating would it be to be, to be inside like the Howard Hawks episode or the John Ford one? It's like, hey, we need you to make a John Ford movie, and you're like, oh yeah, one of the greatest directors of all time. I'll get right on it. Thanks. What I would do though is I would just hire Aaron Sorkin for Hawks because I would be like, the, 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 did you see the trailer for his? Uh, the 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 Ricardos Not that yet. dropped today. No, uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> it looks weird. Nicole Kidman's only in it for three seconds, and she plays fucking Lucille Ball. Oh, that's weird. It's it's. I heard it. I didn't watch. It I'm, I'm excited to see what you have to say because I watched it. And I was like, this is either going to be amazing or just a total fucking disaster. <laughs> ass. Yeah. <laughs> Suck balls. <laughs> Chopper, sick balls. <laughs> Chopper, sick Sorkin. <laughs> anyway, which, Last question. Yeah, sure. Face melter, yay or nay? Nah. Agreed. Nah, these are like... The opposite, in a good uh, way. Yeah, almost the, exactly. The, 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 the polar vortex opposite of what a face melter is. Like These are movies you just hang out with. You get high on a Sunday afternoon and you explore, you read books about, and you just see how they... Uh, hold a place in film history because like if you didn't to to be fair if I were to show these to like 
somebody who had zero knowledge of who the fuck Bud Bedeker is or anything, like they would watch him and be like, why do you like this so much? Like yeah. this just seems like a normal Western. It takes a lot of context and research to really get why these movies are like, you can enjoy them. They're not, enter- not, not entertaining, let's say, but like to really get why they hold a special place for a lot of like film fans and, and historians and stuff like is the you context. Got, you got to do the work. Well, and, and you know, with a face melter, the whole idea is like, for instance, like a face melting horror film. It's like, Oh, you've never seen that. It's this hidden gem, but it's fucking crazy. Like, yeah. for instance, if Evil Dead 2, if people didn't know about it. Like, that's right. that thing where it speaks for itself. Like, that is a crazy experience in yeah. a box. But I, I totally agree with you that Bedeker is, like, based on, if you're a Western fan, if you're a, a full-on, like, film history buff, and you're seeing, again, like, him being this transition period of, and also the kind of person looking for, who's an under who's an underappreciated auteur? Like, he he fits the bill. Right, across across the board. All right. Well, that wraps up spine number 17. Martin, thank you so much. This is wonderful. Indeed. Thank you, sir. I think next time we have some real grimy nonsense coming their way, so stay tuned.